Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the biggest obstacle to personnel reform could be attitude. Could we just stop being so afraid and could we just stop basing everything on distrust and instead think about things from a trusting standpoint so that we can actually go out and do some good? The start date for the president's management agenda is now and the end date is never. If we're going to improve higher times, if we're going to improve retention rates, if we're going to improve workforce satisfaction, we want to do it all the time, continuously. And the Navy's big cloud investment is paying off. In FY21 alone, you know, we, we, our IT spend for cloud to include labor was you know, over 33 million. We had 235 different workloads. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department's chief software officer stepping down. Jason Weiss has been on the job since October. His last day will be April 15th. No word yet on who will replace him. The new federal IT dashboard from the General Services Administration is up and running. GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan says the new dashboard will, quote, incentivize agencies to be more efficient and effective. The agency says itdashboard.gov tracks more than 7,000 IT projects. You can read more on these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. CyberScoop's Zero Trust Summit features public and private sector leaders talking about solutions for federal agencies that are implementing zero trust technology and strategy. The Zero Trust Summit's happening April 6th at the Conrad in Washington, D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Chief Human Capital Officers Act is the next piece of legislation Congress will update that affects the federal workforce. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Government Operations Subcommittee invited four government leaders to tell them how to update the Chico Act. Angela Bailey's founder and CEO of Anunda Life. She's former Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security, and she was one of the witnesses at the hearing. Angie, welcome. It's good to see you again. You told the committee there's more to being a Chico than simply providing human resources policy on selecting, developing, training, and managing a high-quality, productive workforce. What do you think people don't know or don't know well enough about being a federal government chief human capital officer? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. First of all, I do want to thank you for having me on on today. What a pleasure. Um, So, What I was really trying to get at is that there's more than just writing policies. I think sometimes people think that, you know, we sit up in these ivory towers within Washington, D.C., and, you know, we just um, come up with policies that have no relevance whatsoever for the workforces in which we in, in which we try to impact in a positive way. And so. Really, my point to them is, is that in order to be, I think, a top-notch chief human capital officer, you have to get out into the field. You have to walk the walk with the people in which you're actually serving so that you can really, I think, drop down into what is it that they need and then deliver products and services around what they need and not get so hamstrung by all the bureaucracy and all of the rules and the regulations uh, that I think many times work counter to what we're trying to do on behalf of our workforce. You also told the committee, not only does the Chico Act need modernization, but so does how we approach the entire ecosystem in which the federal workforce accomplishes their agency's missions. Um, That ecosystem is 
potentially the challenge because I'm not sure that people are thinking about it at any level right now that way, are they? No, I think what we do is we have a tendency to just dive in and look at everything from a very myopic standpoint. And so when we just say, hey, does the Chico Act need modern, modernized? What we fail to do then is step back and say, wait a minute, what, what is it within how we operate within this great big, and I did call it like an ecosystem, what are all the pieces and parts that we really need to take a look at that make it effective? One of the things as an example that I said to them um, was, you know, we can have a Chico Act, we can have all kinds of things, but if they don't pass a budget on time and we remain in these continuing resolutions, then we can't actually implement the very products and services and new innovative ideas and things that we have because we don't have a budget that would allow us to do so. And so that was really my point to them is that, you know, stop looking at these things as just one-off Band-Aid fixes and instead look at everything that impacts how we deliver uh, to um, our workforce. To that point, you brought out a statistic here that I was not aware of that I think provides tremendous context. When you were talking about, you, you said there are over 100 hiring authorities to that Band-Aid point that you just made. Right. And you told the committee that really they're not necessary. And you said out of over 2 million federal jobs, only 150,000 are available every year. When I think about all of the conversations that I've had on this program, on other programs over the years about um, filling federal jobs, that's not how I would have thought of it. I would have thought that the churn is a lot greater than it sounds like it actually is, Angie. What's the implication of that for the way we should think about filling those jobs? Right. And I think a lot of times, um, to your point, people think that because there's over 2 million federal workers, that all of a sudden we have over 2 million jobs. And no, we have about 150,000. Those are full-time jobs, okay? I'm not talking about the part-time jobs or the seasonal, like a firefighter that might come in as a seasonal. I'm just talking about full-time employment. What that means is that there's a ton of disappointed employee, um, potential applicants that are coming into the federal workforce. I, I can't even remember off the top of my head, the number of people who apply for federal jobs, but let's just take DHS alone. Thousands of people apply for every job that we would put out within DHS. That's just right for people being incredibly disappointed whenever they don't, you know, they're not able to get that particular position. You wrote uh, in your written testimony, takes the entire C-suite, nothing is accomplished by the Chico alone. What's the ideal interaction among the chief human capital officer, chief financial officer, chief information officer, and the acquisition lead at an agency, the different titles, different agencies, but what's that ideal collaboration look like and who else should be involved in those C-suite discussions, Angie? So I, again, I'll, I'll go, I'll feed off of my DHS experience because I, in my opinion, it was one of the most effective um, C-suite operations that we had. First of all, we liked each other. And I think that that was incredibly helpful. So, but that's how we were able to tackle crisis after crisis. Which was, sorry, that's my puppy. Oh, 
I have a new puppy. Um, but anyhow, we were able to come together. So let's just take COVID as an example. Our chief readiness um, uh, operations officer, um, Tom Shalecki, he was responsible for the PPE. That's the personal protective equipment. And then we had, you know, of course, Soraya responsible for procuring testing kits. And then you have uh, Rich McComb responsible for uh, security. And so, you know, again, the list goes on and on. And so when, when you all come together and you see a problem or an issue as being ours to solve, then it, it's so much easier to be able to get things accomplished in a much quicker way. And I, and I would submit in a much better way uh, than if I was to just try to do something alone as the Chico. What's the most important partnership in that, or are they all the same? Are they, is that a partnership of peers, Angie? It is a partnership of peers. And I think it really depends, Francis, on what issue are we dealing with? You know, if I'm trying to deal with like connecting HRIT systems together, then it's incredibly important that I have that I have the chief acquisition officer and the chief information officer at my side. Um, but if I'm trying to solve an issue around facilities and how best to set up a telework situation, well, then it might be the chief readiness officer. If I'm worried about how do I connect the personnel system to the security system, well, then it's with the chief security officer. Now, I will say this, that it's not just the C-suite. It also includes, of course, the leadership. But it, in addition to the leadership, is also working with all of, in my case, all of the components. So not just the chief um, human capital officers, but let's take COVID as an example. When Even though I was in charge of like leading all of that, I still, every single day, I think it was, we would get together, this is in the beginning, with all of the C-suite across the components. So therefore, everybody was hearing the same message at the same time. And we weren't just like passing it down through emails and stuff. Everybody got to understand things. And then there becomes a real appreciation for what each person is trying to accomplish. And then you find people saying, hey, let me try to help you out in that particular area because, you know, I've got some extra time or I've got um, some expertise in that that I can lend to you. So that's what I think makes it incredibly valuable. You were on this program right after the cyber talent management system came into being at DHS when you were still there and you cited the CTMS in your testimony. What about it do you like now that you're on the outside looking in, what about it do you like and what's replicable potentially for other agencies and maybe not just in cyber, Angie? Right. So what I like about it is we took what Congress gave us, which in my opinion was almost like a blank sheet of paper, and we started fresh. And we said, what does civil service look like in the 21st century? How do you deliver that um, so that you can accomplish your cyber mission so that you can pay appropriately? You can com you know, compensate, including benefits appropriately. How do you to recruit, hire, et cetera? So what I love about it is to me, and OMB always felt this way as well, is that what we created within DHS is I think the beginnings of civil service reform. It should be replicated across all the federal agencies and it should go beyond cyber. It has the potential of, of because it, it laid out the framework, I think, of something that is fundamentally important for us moving, moving forward. And the nice thing about it is you did the hard work for seven years and agencies shouldn't have to do it all over again for seven more, right? This is something that's scalable pretty quickly, it seems to me. 
Yeah, I would agree. Except one thing that I've always told all of the agencies is this was built by and for DHS. So they do have to think about that, right? And it was built for cyber. So um, yes, we did the seven years of hard work of all the legal analysis, all the regulatory analysis, all the everything that you can imagine. We tore this thing apart. We did all the hard work with DOD and with, with OPM and OMB and with Congress. However, it does not take away the fact that agencies will have to, if they if they are given this authority, they will have to also invest the kinds of time that we put in into this to make sure that it is by and for them as well. All right. It was a couple of weeks ago that you gave this testimony, Angie. What kind of feedback, if any, have you gotten since the hearing? So I, some of the feedback that I've received is, is that I think people really appreciated the fact that, um, you know, that I kind of told my story, that I stood that I stood firm on what I believe, what I believe. And that message, by the way, hasn't changed in like 14 years. Uh, you know, as I told Langford, you keep inviting me up to have these conversations and not much has changed about <laughs> what I keep saying we need to do. Um, and and I think the Chico's appreciated the fact that, you know, I, I stand behind the Chico's. I stand behind OPM and, and OMB and these guys like I I'm a fan of all of it. I'm just saying, could we just stop being so afraid? And could we just stop basing everything on distrust and instead think about things from a trusting standpoint so that we can actually go out and do some good? Angela Bailey, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. You can read more about the refresh for the Chico Act and find a link to the hearing Angie testified at in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Wednesday's show, finding new technology and new partners for Army Futures Command. The leader of the command's outreach to academia is here. That show debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Nine government leaders will manage the three pillars of the president's management agenda. Those leaders will be responsible for getting results across the government enterprise. Ed DeSev is coordinator of the Agile Government Center at the National Academy of Public Administration. He's former deputy director for management at the Office of Management and Budget, among other leadership roles in government. Ed, it's great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. What is the premise of Agile Government, and how does it potentially apply not just for these leaders that are driving these priority areas, but for other leaders across government that are trying to fulfill the spirit and the letter of the PMA? Welcome, Ed. Thanks, Francis. I'm delighted to be here. Um, Agile Government is recognizing the fact that for the difficult problems, for the great challenges we have across not just the federal government, but local governments as well particularly those related to the loss of trust. Trust has plummeted, uh, plummeted not just for elected officials, but also for the competence that we see in unelected officials, that is the bureaucrats that are out there. And we realize that the idea of silos in organizational hierarchies and a slow waterfall approach to government is not gonna cut it in today's market. We know that customers have great expectations. If I can book a table online in about 30 seconds, um, if I can make an airline reservation, usually fairly easily, if I can book a Marriott hotel without even breaking a sweat, I'd like to be able to get my social security forms without having to go through a process that is almost gymnastic in nature. 
So agile government is trying to break down silos, trying to make things work more quickly, trying to improve competence in government, thus improving the way public values government and improving trust in government. That's what we're up to. We see examples of that happening across government. For example, when I signed up for TSA PreCheck, it worked exactly the way that you just described it. I set an appointment online, I went to the location, the person was ready, et cetera. There are other places where it's happening. What's the missing link or what are the missing links in the places where that hasn't happened yet, Ed? Let me ask one question, Francis. Why did you have to go to a place? They had to verify my identification. Why? Why couldn't you have done it online? Why couldn't you have taken your driver's license, whatever it was, and literally submitted it to TSA with your charming picture on it and not not had to leave home? I don't get it. I'm not sure... I have a pre-check too, and uh, I'm a trusted traveler now. It's really exciting to be a trusted traveler. I'm not sure what it gets me, but I'm a trusted traveler. But I had to go about 20 miles from my home to a little strip mall and sit for 20 minutes waiting for the folks to be ready. That's not agile. I, I, I realize that it's more agile than some other things, but it's not agile. What we're seeing in government is we're seeing the move from digitization, from digital government to organizational change. And the example, the best example of that we have so far is the Veterans Administration's change where customer satisfaction has improved dramatically among the people within the VA. And VA is using the Agile format to go back and forth with its customers to continually, continually talk to them about new changes. They're going to have to close some hospitals. They're going to make some people unhappy. But if they do it in a way that is inclusive, that is transparent, that has integrity, they're going to be better off than they would have otherwise. All right. I mentioned the uh, nine leaders that are taking over these three priority areas of the PMA, strengthening and empowering the workforce, delivering excellent, equitable, and secure federal services and customer experience, managing the business of government to build back better. What does agile government look like from a, a project or product development standpoint? I can visualize it for an IT project where that term is most common, Ed. What does it look like when I'm trying to do something that, for example, strengthens and empowers the workforce? Okay. First of all, I want to commend um, the PMC. I want to commend uh, Jason for the work that he and his staff have done. They've picked out three tough areas. The workforce has been decimated by the the, uh, admission of the Biden administration over the last four years. It was almost the administration against the workforce, being able to fire at will, et cetera, et cetera. So workforce development is a tremendously difficult thing. What it's going to take, and the reason you need leaders across government is it's not just one governmental organization. OPM can't do it by itself. I believe that DOD is part of the workforce group, the Deputy Secretary of DOD is part of the workforce group. You need that big workforce. You need to be able to think through, what's my strategy? First of all, what's the mission of the organization? What is the leadership component that I'm trying to put in place? How do I get some evidence that the changes I'm going to make are going to make a difference? What metrics do I use? Those are all elements of agile government strategy. We then turn to organization. How do I create a rapport with the customers, 
that I'm dealing with, with my workforce customers. They're disillusioned now. There was a recent survey that was done by the Partnership for uh, Public Service, where they said that most of these uh, individuals don't have any idea what the mediating elements in the workforce are. Um, they don't trust them. But when they do have an idea about them, they don't trust them. So you've got to build back that rapport with the federal workforce itself. You've got to create networks, networks across unions, networks across locations, networks with the private sector, networks for hiring, networks for getting information out. And then you've got to create internal teams to activate those networks and work with the customers. That's agile organization. Okay. And finally, implementation. You've got to innovate. You've got to do things differently. I just talked about pre-check. You've got to do things differently than that. You can't have me go to a shopping center. You've got to move quickly. This is not something we can sit around and wait two or three or four years. VA just had another problem recently. They had a $16 billion system that didn't work because it wasn't done in an agile fashion. So you've got to move quickly. And finally, you've got to be persistent. You have to continuously fail and learn from your failure and come back and do things again. Those principles are the Agile Government principles. You can find them on the website of the Agile Government Center at the National Academy. They have to lead to an Agile transformation. We're in the process now of defining exactly what an Agile transformation is at, an, at a high organizational level. One of our Agile Government Network members, Inez Mergel, is a professor at the University of Konstadt in Germany. And she said, we have to move from just digital projects to overall changes in management approaches for government as a whole. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what um, the leaders of each of the three elements need to do. Agile is to show them how to do what it is they want to do. You mentioned uh, evidence a moment ago, Ed, how do each of those nine people measure the success of implementation of these principles that you've just outlined? And when is it fair to go back and try to measure that success? What kind of right. time should they have to be able to get this work done? That's actually the question of metrics rather than evidence. Evidence is an a priori kind of thing. Before we start, what is the evidence we have that there's a problem and what is the evidence we have that this particular methodology is going to be successful? They're going to need to do that. To, to gather evidence, they're going to have to look at the private sector, other elements of the public sector, and see what's worked where. Then they have to develop a series of metrics. You should continuously review the metrics. Don't wait. It's not something where you put a metric out there and you can sit and say, well, let's see how we're... No. If we're going to improve higher times, if we're going to improve retention rates, if we're going to improve workforce satisfaction, we want to do it all the time, continuously. So the employee satisfaction survey is annually. We probably should start with the baseline and maybe do it every quarter or so for a select group to see how we're doing. The retention rate, if, the, if that's the metric chosen, pretty easy to figure out. The, the time to hire, pretty easy to figure out. So metrics should be embedded early and reviewed often. Ed DeSev, it's great to talk to you. I look forward to having you come back and continue the conversation, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to the Agile Government Center at Napa in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming April 14th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Navy will buy all of its cloud computing capability through the new Naval Digital Marketplace. The Chief Information Officer of the Navy, Aaron Weiss, included the requirement in the service's new cloud policy. Tony Plater is acting Chief Information Security Officer at the Navy. Juliana Vita of Splunk is former Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Navy. In this highlight from a video conversation with FedScoop's Wyatt Cash, Plater says the Navy follows DOD's security requirements guide closely. Due to our adoption of zero trust, you know, starting with the Navy flank speed, the M365 training, you know, we're seeing gains across the board for both the end user customer experience and our ability to securely operate and defend. You know, this is really showing up in unprecedented automation and productivity. You know, our new direction is allowing us to work smarter and not harder. And for instance, you know, securing identities and data, we're allowing users to connect from personal devices and the internet. So instead of continuing to build our increasingly obsolete and legacy network, we're seeing ways that we can be more effective at protecting data and workload. Uh, but we are pivoting, right? Because, because of all that remote telework, we have to reach, we have to do reskill and retrain our staff. But we want to do it in a way that makes the best out of innovation and modernization, which points back to how we're using the cloud. And the cloud offers, offers us modernization and it offers us innovation. And from a security perspective, I'm looking at how to leverage that real-time data uh, collection, real-time data information. So when I'm thinking about the cloud, I'm thinking about how I can do real-time, understand what is the security posture of the workload. Well, Juliana, you know, I know you spent a long career at the Navy and later served in the Pentagon. I'd be interested to hear your perspective on what you see um, the Department of Navy doing now and particularly uh, its more recent steps in using the cloud more effectively for security. Thanks, Wyatt. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here talking with Tony today because Tony and I used to work together and uh, for many years in the Pentagon. And what is really cool about this conversation is that he and I had that shared experience. And I'm talking, let's say, six to 12 years ago, the shared experience of being very focused on it was all legacy environment at that point, um, very much legacy data centers, legacy reporting, checklist mentality, let's call it in terms of compliance. And that was just the way the DOD operated then and, and the Department of the Navy. And in just that time, look at how much, look at the words you heard Tony talk about, um, you know, data and advanced analytics and cloud and modernization and innovation. We weren't using those words <laughs> 10 years ago. Uh, we weren't. And, and, and it was just because that's how the world was. And now this adoption by the government of the value that um, commercial technology can bring, particularly cloud technology, that can drive the agility, the flexibility, the um, the efficiency, the security, all of those things that in the past, the Department of Navy and DOD used to think could only be created or managed by the government. Now, there's this realization that we really are better together. You know, the government brings their expertise, industry brings our expertise. And if it weren't that way, I don't know where we would have been 
at the beginning of the pandemic and, and today. So it's been great to watch the evolution of leaders like, like Tony and others in the Pentagon and across the DOD to really change the mindset and change the way that they um, write policy, govern, make investment decisions, train the workforce, drive culture to see just the modern environment that they're creating and leading today. And it's it's really, really exciting to watch from, from this side, from the industry side, having been on the uh, on the government side before. Well, Tony, back to you. You know, I envision just how you're trying to bring um, some order and rationality to just uh, seemingly endless number of systems. And now we're adding the cloud to that. Talk to me at the security level of how are you trying to orchestrate uh, those security policies, particularly now that we've continued to embrace zero trust and you know, we've moved into more of a DevSecOps environment. H how are you trying to pull all that together? And what are some maybe early success stories that you can point to? Okay, great. Thanks, Wyatt. I, you know, I want to point first, you know, how do you, how do you orchestrate? So from a cloud perspective, you know, the, Dow, the Don Cloud Memo of December 2020, which was co-signed by, you know, the Assistant Secretary of Navy for for RDA and Don CIO. So that provided a framework. And then, you know, the services, the Navy and Marine Corps, you know, they've updated their policies to accelerate promotion, you know, acquisition and consumption of cloud services. So I think those are key in, you know, starting the framework. And then, you know, I talked about earlier how, you know, the uh, flank speed effort, the Microsoft 365 uh, flank speed effort has been a game changer for us. You know, when I look at what we're doing in the cloud in FY21 alone, you know, we, we our IT spend for cloud to include labor was, you know, over 33 million. We had 235 different workloads. So I look at it from moving with which uh, Julie brought up earlier, then how do we protect that cloud instance in those environments? And uh, our CIO has been very forward leaning in a cyber ready vision and talking about, we have to move from compliance to cyber readiness. So I'm taking what we're talking about in cyber readiness and not only applying it to our um, premise uh, applications, architecture, I'm looking at how we apply that to our cloud environments as well. So we have to be able to measure cyber holistically. We have to be able to understand what our environments look like to the adversary. And then we have to take steps as well to then harden those environments. So I'm looking at how we can use current modern technology, modern architectures, uh, employed zero trust uh, architectures, uh, how we can then take our naval identity services and be able to essentially be able to make sure we are able to promote the use of those identities across the across architecture. So we're in, we're working that and working very closely with the chief technology officer to come up with those architectures that are going to bring about our next and more secure environments. Tony Plater, the acting CISO at the Navy with former Navy Deputy CIO Juliana Vita. You can find a link to watch the entire video conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice. Thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C., James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. 
Tomorrow, a look inside Finding Future Tech at Army Futures Command. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.